I'm wearing George uh, Smith's favorite shirt today. It's a striped shirt. He says, I look like a blackjack dealer <laughs> on a Mississippi River boat. And all I need to do is take off my coat, put on a couple armbands and a visor, and we can be in business. <laughs> but uh, Christmas season is a great time of year, and uh, we want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. We know some of you may be gone next weekend, so we want to say it this weekend. And if you've joined our class, we welcome you to our class. If you're a visitor, we welcome you to our class. By the way, we do have a class directory, and if you've joined our class, you would want to get a copy of that class directory. It gives email addresses, phone numbers, and so forth. And, uh, but it's also a sad time. Uh, I didn't know about Patsy. Patsy, was that your brother? Sister? How old was she? 67. 67 years old. And Nellene's, it was Nellene's younger brother who died. And, uh, 67. You know, and it's, uh, I was thinking, you know, when parents die, that's sad, but you do expect your parents to die. But when your siblings die, it's a very difficult time. And I, I think I do want to pray for Nellene and Patsy and just the others in the, in the class who've had somebody die. You know, when a child dies, it's very difficult. I don't care if the child's died 30 years ago. And at Christmas time, it can be a very sad time. So can we just bow and, and pray for those people who are going through a very difficult time with recent and even uh, past losses in their family. Father, we do thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you that it's all about birth, and it is about eternal life. It's a message that death is not the end. Not only have, has the Savior been born, but through his birth we can be born again into eternal life. And we pray for all of our friends and our members of the class. We pray for Patsy, and we pray for Nellene, especially this week. It's a very difficult time. It causes an ache in the heart. There's a loss there. And especially, Lord, we pray for those who have lost children uh, in the past, distant past. And each Christmas, they haven't been able to be with their children. And yet, Lord, those children are celebrating Christmas with Jesus Christ, whose birth we're celebrating. And it's greater and more glorious than anything we can imagine. And so, uh, even in the midst of our sadness, we can rejoice for them. And one day, Lord, we will all be together and we be celebrating Christmas with our Savior face to face. Now, Lord, we ask that as we open your word today, you speak to us. May I be able to speak clearly and unfold this passage to each one of us. May it speak to our hearts, be applied to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Take your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we started a new series in the Gospel of Luke. We go verse by verse through the book. And Luke says in the first four verses of this Gospel that he's going to chronicle the life of Jesus and he's going to put it in, in a certain order. In order so that Christ life can be comprehended and understood. And he says he's going to start from the beginning. And where he starts, which is very interesting, is with John the Baptist. We often believe that the gospel starts with Jesus, but it actually starts with John the Baptist. Mark, when he opens his gospel, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
And he says, John the Baptist. And he brings John the Baptist in right in chapter 1. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes all the way back to creation. But when he comes into time, he says, And there was a man sent by God whose name was John. And that's in chapter 1 and verse 6. All the Gospel writers put John right at the beginning of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. John is the forerunner. And Luke does the same thing. So, in verse, and it's very interesting how Luke lays out his book. For example, he'll go back and forth between John and Jesus. In verse 5 of chapter 1, he tells us about the birth announcement of John. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, the birth announcement of John. Then in verse 26, he gives us the birth announcement of Jesus. Then in verse 57, he tells us about the birth of John the Baptist. Then in chapter 2 and verse 1, he tells us about the birth of Jesus. Notice how he's going back between John and Jesus. John and Jesus. Then in chapter 3... He tells us how John begins his ministry. And then in chapter 4, he tells us how Jesus begins his ministry. And then he tells us how John ends up in prison. And he tells us how Jesus carries on. And he goes back and forth between John and Jesus, John and Jesus. And you can't separate the two. They are together as a team. John, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, who comes in the name of the Lord. So last week, we looked at the announcement of John's birth, and today we're going to look at the announcement of Jesus' birth. Now in the past, uh, we have dealt with some of the Luke passages at Christmas time, and I've tried to add some material here uh, dealing with things that we haven't dealt with. We're going to be spending a lot of time on Christmas themes probably for the next three or four weeks, so even in the January we'll still be talking about Christmas, but that's what we need to do to go verse by verse. So let's pick up at the announcement of Jesus' birth. In other words, this is going to be what we normally call the Annunciation, a pronouncement that Jesus will be born. We'll pick up at verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month, sixth month of what? Sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Remember, if you look back at verse uh, 24, it said when she conceived, that's Elizabeth, she hid herself for five months, and then she began to show and so in verse 26, it's now the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and it says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now in these two verses, we see a date, Mary's sixth month. We see a location, Galilee, and we see personalities. We see Gabriel the angel. We see Joseph. And we see Mary. Now the location is very interesting. Galilee is 70 miles north. The angel the first time came to Zacharias to announce uh, that Elizabeth was going to conceive and bear a son. That was in Jerusalem. This time the angel visits in Nazareth which is 70 miles north of Jerusalem. It's on the southern slopes of the Lebanon mountain range. So Lebanon is the news, and the news, and that's right where Jesus was born. It was a town of uh, less than 1,000 people. 
very small community, and it's where peasants lived. Jesus was a peasant. In Roman society, there were only two classes of people. There were the elite, and there were the peasants. In America, we have the upper class, the middle class, and the lower class. In the Roman Empire, there were only two classes. There was an upper class that consisted of 90%, which consisted of 10% of the people, and there was a lower class, which was 90% of the people. The lower class is what we would call today poor. There was no middle class. You would not be living in the middle class if you were living in Bible times. You would either be an elitist, the top five, six, seven, ten percent of the people, or you would be a peasant. The elitist were those who were associated with the royal family and worked for the royal family. And there were some, maybe in the like the sixth or seventh percent, who uh, were the high priest and the royal family amongst Jewish, the Jewish people. But everybody else was a peasant. Jesus was a peasant. Mary was a peasant. Joseph was a peasant. And so you need to know that. So that's the location. Now, when you look at the personalities, you have Gabriel, the same angel that appeared to make the announcement about John the Baptist. And then you have, in verse 27, Joseph. He's described as being of the house of David. That gives us his tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah, which means if you would have traced his ancestry back, you would have ended up with David, King David. So he had a royal line. He wasn't royal to himself. It'd be like you being related to somebody very famous in the past. I was uh, related to a guy named James Blaine who ran for vice president once. <laughs> That's my claim to fame. <laughs> But I'm not the vice president, and I'm not running for vice president. No one looks at me in that life. And Joseph had a very distinguished relative, and he came from a royal family, but now, generations later, he was as poor as a church mice. And then it says there's a virgin, describes what Mary is, and uh, gives her name, which literally is Miriam. Not Mary. Mary is a westernized name. That's an English name. Miriam, the same name as Moses' sister. And she too comes from a royal background, but she also is a peasant. And then notice in verse 27, it says she's betrothed to a man. She was betrothed to Joseph. Now betrothal was very similar to our engagement period, but with a difference. It was legally binding. You didn't get out of it. And it was like being married. In fact, you were. Once you were betrothed, you were legally declared husband and wife, but you did not live together as husband and wife. And the betrothal period was a, a long process. It was very interesting. First of all, the father of the bridegroom, the father of the son, had to make a deal with the girl's father on a purchase price. First, there was a match. Yeah, first, that was actually what started. First thing was a match. I watched the movie last night. Lynn and I watched the movie. And it was called Namesake. It's a great movie. It's a wonderful movie. It's about an Indian family that moves to America and how they continue their customs of matching their children. First, there was a match. 
And there had to be some sort of approval. The boy had to say, okay, I think that she'll be okay. And likewise with the girl. But then the father of the, of the boy, he had to uh, uh, negotiate a purchase price with the bride's father. And that's because the girl had worth. She had worth to the father. Because when he lost her, he was not only losing a daughter, he was losing a helper. He was losing a worker. And girls, because they got married so early, and I was just reading Lynn, the commentary last week on this passage, that said that the average Jewish girl was betrothed to a man at the age of twelve and a half. Twelve and a half. So that father was going to lose 50 years of work. So a price had to be negotiated based on her worth. That's why Proverbs 31, when it talks about the perfect woman, says, and her worth is more than rubies. Without understanding the betrothal period, you don't know what it means when it says her worth is more than rubies. You just think, ah, that means that this is a good woman and you know she's worth more than her weight in gold. And no, it means when she was purchased because of all of her talents, the boy's father had to negotiate a high price. And he got a bargain at that. <laughs> Everybody, all the women say And once that price was settled, then the boy and the girl would enter into an oath that was legally binding, making them husband and wife. And they lived separated for a period of one year, and then the marriage was consummated. And during that year of separation, if either one fell into some sort of immoral or illicit relationship, the other one had the right to break the vow. That was the only time. That's why Joseph, over in Matthew, when he finds out Mary's pregnant, he said, uh-oh, she's been fooling around, and he was going to write her a letter of divorcement. Because during that one-year period of betrothal, neither one could have any relationship with another human being physically. And so that's what they're going through. So you need to really understand what's happening right there. Now we come to the Annunciation. Now look at verse 28. And having come in, this is the angel coming in, meaning into the house, the angel said to her, to Mary, King James says, Hail, New King James says, Rejoice. The Latin is Ave, from which we get asked the song Ave Maria. That means Hail Mary, Hail Maria, Hail, Hail Miriam. And then he describes her this way. Highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you above women. Is that what it says? No, no. Blessed are you in the midst of other women. Because God has pointed you out and He has bestowed His favor upon you. And He is with you. This is a similar uh, announcement that the angel makes to Gideon. Remember Gideon back in the book of Judges? Uh, the angel comes and he says to Gideon, The Lord's with you, you mighty man of valor. And that's what the angel says here. Look in verse 28. Rejoice, highly favored one. Look. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. That's the message of Christmas. That the Lord is with us. And He has favored her. It means she's full of grace. I think maybe even the King James says full of grace. 
And because she's favored and full of grace, she's been blessed. That's why he says at the end, blessed are you among women. So he comes in, grabs her attention, says she's favored, that God's with her, and the result is that she is blessed. And whenever God has an assignment for us, it's important that we have His favor. And it's important that He's with us. We need His power in order to fulfill His assignment. And here, God is going to call her to an assignment, and He's going to favor her or begrace her to do that assignment, which is very important. Now we see her response. Look at verse 29. But when she saw Him, that's the angel, she was troubled at his saying. She was startled. She was upset. Something upset her. Now, it's not that she's just upset by seeing him. She's upset at his saying. What he says troubles her. And look what else it says in verse 29. And she considered, she mauled over this saying. What manner of greeting this was. She was saying, what does that mean? What's an angel doing here? Now, she wasn't as surprised as Zacharias when the angel showed up. Zacharias was praying, opens his eyes, and there's the angel, and he's shocked. She doesn't seem to be that shocked. She's more shocked than over what he says, which says that this girl was a peasant girl. Zacharias was probably part of the elite. The Lord was with her. Zacharias was with the Lord. He was in the holy place. But when God shows up through the angel, Zacharias is shocked. Mary is shocked over what he says. Why would God favor me, a peasant girl, amongst all the women in the world? And so she's trying to figure out what that saying means in verse 29. She's trying to figure it out. So then the angel gives her some sort of reassurance in verse 30. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. Don't be afraid, Mary. Why? Because, for, you have found favor or grace with God. Now notice that's the second time he's talked about favor or grace. Here the Bible says Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Okay? The fact that God has to give you favor, the fact that God extends grace to you, indicates something. It indicates that you need grace. The fact that God shows you favor indicates that you need favor. It's very important that we have favor. And you're going to see later on how Jesus had favor not only toward his father, but he had favor with people when he was growing up. And we need God's grace and we need his favor. Now why? What it says in verse 31. Here's the reason. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. This is why she needs his grace, because God has an assignment for her. And anytime God has an assignment for you, you're going to need his grace to complete that assignment. Amen. So here's what it says. And behold. So you know, we read over that. But what it means is, God's given his grace. Now look! Look! See, that word behold is an attention getter. Behold! What do you do when you say behold? 
trying to get someone's attention. So she's pondering all this in her mind, trying to figure all this out. Her mind is cluttered. The angel has to calm her down. He says, God has graced you. God has shown favor to you. Now behold, listen. Listen to what I'm going to say. And what does he say to her? You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Now if you think that his salutation was a shock, this is a shock. Now, we know this, and I think Mary understood this, that this verse is pretty much a paraphrase of that famous Christmas prophecy, Isaiah 7, 14. And you know that verse. You just look at verse 31 and see if this doesn't sound like Isaiah 7, 14. Look at verse 31, and I'll read Isaiah 7, 14 for you. Here's Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Do you see that in verse 31? Yes, you do. Here's the rest of Isaiah 7, 14. And bear a son. Do you see that? Yeah, bring forth a son. Here's the rest of Isaiah 7, 14. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. And here it says, his name shall be called Jesus, which means God saves. God saves. So what we have is the angel says to Mary that she's going to have a son and he's going to have a name that God saves. Now she still doesn't understand everything that's going on, but being a pious person, she would have known that prophecy, which was a prophecy regarding the Messiah. Now just like back in the message last week, the angel does three things at one time. He makes the announcement that there's going to be a birth. He tells the sex, it's going to be a son, and he gives the name. So we have all three wrapped up in one. And then look at verse 32. Now he gives a description, a five-fold description of this child that she's going to have. Number one, he will be called great. Now, if you go back to verse 15, the angel said about John the Baptist. For he will be what? Great. In the sight of the Lord. Jesus is going to be greater than that. Okay? He's just not going to be great in the sight of the Lord. A lot of people are great in the sight of the Lord. But they're not so great to other people. They're not great for generations to come. They do things in the corner that no one knows about, but God knows about it. God knows about the prayer warrior that no one else sees. That person's great in the sight of the Lord. But Jesus is going to be greater than that. So the angel says, your son's going to be great. Now look at the second thing in verse 32. He will be called the son of the highest. He'll be called the son of God. Now what does that mean? He'll be called the son of God. Now remember, Mary's getting this. What does it mean to Mary that he's going to be called the Son of God? Okay. Now, in order to understand that, and we don't want to put our theology on the text, the mistake that we make when we go through a scripture is that we put 2,000 years of theology and we impose it on the text. Always a mistake. You always get the scripture wrong when you do that. Okay. So what you have to do is you have to look within the context. What does it mean he'll be called the Son of God? 
El Elyon, the son of the highest, the son of God. Well, let's look at the context. If you go over to chapter 3, for example, <coughs> and you go toward the end of that chapter, you'll see the genealogy of Jesus beginning in verse 23. And you'll start looking and you'll see all these people and they're called the son of, the son of. See that in verse 25, 4? The son of. Verse 25, the son of. Verse 26, the son of. 27, the son of. And it goes all the way down. Look at verse 37. Son of Methuselah. You see that? Son of Enoch, Jared, so on and so forth. Look at 38. Son of Enosh, son of Seth, the son of Adam. But Adam's called what? The Son of God. Now that's the context. So that means that Adam's different than everybody else in all those verses, doesn't it? How is Adam different than Seth? See verse 28. See, Seth is the son of what? Adam, but Adam's the son of God. So what's the difference? Yeah, one had a beginning from two human parents. But the other is the Son of God because He was created by God. So here, Jesus is the second Adam. God's going to create Jesus. He's just like Adam. That's why in Jesus' genealogy, they trace Him right back in chapter 3 to Adam so that you'll know that a second Adam has arrived. The first Adam to whom God gave dominion over earth. Remember, He created Adam and Eve and He said... Be fruitful, multiply, and have what? Dominion. He made Adam a king. But Adam gave it up. Adam fell. He listened, instead of to the voice of God, he listened to another voice in the garden. And Adam became, in a sense, a fallen king. He relinquished the world. And so Satan says to Jesus, he takes Jesus to a high mountain, he shows him the kingdoms of the world, he says, Bow down and worship me, and these will be yours because they're mine to give. Satan has usurped the authority, and he's got it all. He's the God of this world. And so God's going to get it back. He's going to do it through a second Adam, a rescuer, a second man. That's Jesus. So when you go back to chapter 1, you see that he's called the son of the highest, the son of God. That's what it means. This, so she's starting to get an idea that this is the Messiah who's going to Take back the universe. Recapture the universe. And then in verse 32 it says this, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will be a ruler. The Old Testament prophets uh, foretold a day when the Messiah would come and uh, would take the throne of David. That was simply a metaphor of saying that he would be a ruler, just like David was a ruler over the whole world, so the Messiah would be a ruler. And so he's going to be a ruler. He's going to sit on the throne of his father David. Now, at this point, Mary has to be saying, all those Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah are about to be fulfilled, and I'm going to be in on it. Now, this had to be scary for a 12-and-a-half-year-old kid. I don't think there's anybody in this room today who's 12-and-a-half years old. But imagine that, a 12-and-a-half-year-old saying, you are going to be in on the bringing forth of the Messiah who's going to recapture the world and he's going to reign 
like King David. And we get all excited about the second coming. But can you... And that's all based on speculation, not the second coming itself. But dates and all that's based on speculation. It could happen today, it might happen tomorrow, we get all excited. Well, let me tell you something. Here's a word that it's going to happen. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. When's it going to happen? It's going to happen. How long? Nine months. <laughs> we know exactly when the first coming is going to take place. So she has to be really excited. Now look what else it says. Verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now the house of Jacob is the house of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He will be the king of the Jews. So she understands that this is a messianic title. He will rule over Israel forever. And it says this, finally, and as of his kingdom, there will be no end. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. End. So when he becomes king, he'll never be dethroned. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and of its increase there will be no end. So she is hearing these verses, and she's interpreting them from prophecy. And she realizes that this is the Messianic king that she's going to give birth to. Every Jewish woman, according to the book of Daniel, hoped that she would give birth to the Messiah. That's why every Jewish man hoped that his son would be, that his first baby would be a boy. Maybe this will be the Messiah. That's what the Jews thought. They were looking for the Messiah. They didn't know how he would come. They knew he'd come, have to be born. They knew that. And so every woman thought that she might give birth to the Messiah. But that was sort of a vague hope. And here it's going to actually happen. And the angel says it's going to happen. So all these pieces of this cosmic puzzle are being put together and it's all going to happen right here in Galilee, which is a you know, one-horse town. It doesn't even have a traffic light. That's how bad Galilee is. There was a town about four miles away, which was a pretty significant town, but Galilee was a, was a know-nothing town. That's why uh, Nathaniel says when, when uh, Philip comes and says, we found the Messiah. And he says, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Not in Galilee. Nothing comes out of Galilee. There's not one Old Testament prophecy talking of... Galilee's not mentioned once in the Old Testament. Do you know that? Not once. There's nothing that says Galilee is going to be the place where Messiah comes from. And yet that's exactly where God chooses. And he chooses the small things oftentimes. So now we look at uh, verse 34, and look what Mary says. Look at her reaction. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? I'm only betrothed. I never have had physical relationships. So how, how can I conceive and have a child, since I do not know a man? Now, what's the difference between Mary's response and Zacharias's response? Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I what? Know this. How shall I know this? He doubts it. He doubts it. How shall I know this? you have any evidence? Any proof? 
But look at Mary's. Verse 34. How can this be? She just wants clarification. She says, I don't understand it. I'm not even married. How can I have a child? It doesn't make sense. See? But there is a difference. A small difference, but there's a difference. One is, verse 18, how shall I know? How do I know this is true? She says, it's a little bit of a difference. It is a difference. So the angel explains to her. Look at verse 35. The angel answered. See, he answered her question. And he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. In other words, there will be human agency, there will be Mary's side to the equation, and there will be divine agency. The Holy Spirit, here's how you're going to conceive, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Now listen very carefully. This doesn't mean that God had sex with Mary. That's what the Mormons teach. The Mormons teach that God the Father, who has a physical body, Don't ever let Mormons say, well, we worship the same God as you. They believe that God has a physical body made of flesh and bones that He used to be a human being on earth and He evolved up to being a God of His universe. He had a physical body and that physical God came down to earth and had sex with Mary and Jesus was born. Well, let me tell you, if God had sex with Mary and Jesus was born, she wasn't a virgin. You're not a virgin if you have sex, even if you have sex with God. Now that's what the Mormons believe, okay? That's not what this says. This says, she says, how's, how's this going to be? How can I have a child? The Holy Spirit's going to come over you, overshadow you. In other words, it's going to be something that's miraculous. That's the same wording that is used in Acts 1.8. And we've just been through Acts, where he says, uh, wait into Jerusalem, and... The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall receive power. Remember that? Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit shall come upon you and you shall receive power and you'll be my witnesses. Prior to that, they didn't have any power. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, they had power. That which they couldn't do before, they could do. That which was impossible before was now possible. Why? Because of the divine agency. It's a miracle. And so that's what we have. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Same phrase that's used in creation. And the Spirit of God hovered or overshadowed the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Well, how was things created? God's Spirit created them. How's Christ created in the womb of Mary? God's Spirit does that. We don't understand it. It's a miracle. But that's what we're, what we're talking about right here. Now look at verse 35. It says, And the power of the highest will overshadow you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. And again, there's that phrase of an overshadowing, the Holy Spirit coming upon a person. Therefore, also, that Holy One who was born will be called the Son of God. And that's how it's going to be, through an operation of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an amazing thing. Someone asked me this week about uh, Roman Catholic doctrine. Roman Catholics hold to what's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. And they also say that Jesus' birth was an immaculate conception. That Mary was without sin. Mary was without sin. And their logic is this. If Mary had sin, 
But she was a sinner, like we are. And she had a son who was born, he would be a sinner. He would inherit her sin nature. But that's not so. Here it says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow her, even her sin nature, and that which is born is going to be a holy one. (coughs) Now we see this in the production of the Bible. You know what the Scripture says? It talks about the Old Testament prophets. It says, they wrote. 2 Peter 1 says, and men of old wrote, watch this, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit moved upon them, they began to write. And what they penned was the Word of God. Now watch this. Those men who penned the Word of God were all sinners. But that book's pure. No error there. How can sinful men produce a pure book? They wrote as the Holy Spirit moved on them. And so that's what you have here. So we don't know how it all happened, but we know that this is what the angel says is going to happen. And so from Mary, Jesus is going to become, have a human nature. The Holy Spirit's going to move upon him. He's going to be the Son of God. He's going to have a divine nature. Now it's the same thing when we're born again. See, we've been born in this world. I had two parents, even though people think I'm from outer space sometimes. I had two parents. And uh, from them, I've got a human nature. But Jesus said it's not enough to be born and have a human nature. You need to be born again. How? From above. The Holy Spirit comes, and guess what? We're born again. I don't know how it happens. But when that happens, God imparts His nature to us. And so, and it's a nature that's pure. Even though that my, I have a sinful nature, I have a pure nature. That's a divine nature. Peter writes that also. So, this is what's happening, and Jesus is going to be born, and He's going to be holy. Now look at verse 36. Gabriel now gives Mary assurance. He says, now indeed, and that's a very interesting word, indeed, and so is the word now. He says, right now, Indeed, Elizabeth, your relative. You mean old Elizabeth? Yeah, Elizabeth, your relative. (laughs) Has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. Just as Sarah was old and barren and had a child and it was a miracle of God, so Elizabeth, who was old and barren, has conceived and will have a child. She's in her sixth month and that's a miracle of God. And let me tell you, there's no difference between being old beyond childbearing years and barren and being a virgin when it comes to having children. A virgin does not have children and guess what? Either does a person who's beyond childbearing years. But she says, look, what's go- the angel says, look, what's going to happen to you is a miracle. It's going to be a miracle birth. But let me tell you something. One's already happening. And it's happening to your relative, Elizabeth. So, what we're going to have is we're going to have the birth of John the Baptist, we're going to have the birth of Jesus, 
this is something most people don't never consider. John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. They're cousins. And they've lived apart by about 70 miles, but they are related to each other. And so the angel says, another miraculous birth is happening. This is a birth that's coming from the womb of a barren woman. Now look at the explanation in verse 37. Because for with God nothing is impossible. But I want you to put a line right down the middle between the word nothing, between N-O and thing. No thing is impossible. The word is rhema. Some of you have heard of that word. It's a Greek term which is usually translated word. Rhema, usually translated word. And so it reads like this. Your birth's going to be miraculous. Elizabeth's birth, she's going to have is miraculous. For with God, no rhema, no word will be impossible. What God says, God is able to do. What God says, God is able to do. He backs up his words with action. If God says it, don't say, well, it's impossible. No, it's not impossible. God can keep his word. That's why when Sarah laughed, remember when Sarah was told she was going to have a child, she laughed? You just went, ha, ha. Do you ever know that Abram's name was Abram? It wasn't Abraham, was it? A-B-R-A-M. And guess what was added? H-A. Ha. Ha-ha-ha-ha. <laughs> You're going to have a child. Ha-ha-ha-ha. Well, we're going to change your name to Abraham. Ha-ha-ha-ha. <laughs> and uh, when Abraham and Sarah laugh, uh, the angel of the Lord says this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's what that's how that's what it says in Genesis 18. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's in the Hebrew translation. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, it says, "With God, no word is impossible." Amen. Exact same quote. So when the angel says this, immediately. Mary's mind has to go back to what the angel said to Abraham and Sarah, that this birth is miraculous, and with God, no word is impossible. And God has a word for you. And when God has a word for you, it's possible too. When God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you say, well, how can that be? I don't know. But with God... No word is impossible. Lord, if this rich young ruler can't get saved, who can? (coughs) Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, possible. And God says to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he'll back up his words with action. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So look what she says in verse 38. Then Mary said, Behold, 
Hey, wait, there's that word again. The angel set it up in 31. Look, behold, I have a message for you. You're going to conceive and have a child. Mary says, wait, look, I got a message for you. <laughs> behold, look at me. The maid servant of the Lord. In other words, I'm at your service. I'm at your disposal. And then she says, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now think, for Mary to say that in verse 38, so be it according to your word, imagine the cost that she realized that she was going to have to pay to say those words right there. And then she's going to have a child out of wedlock. She'd be the disgrace of the whole town. She'd have to be sent away. In fact, she does. She goes to Elizabeth's house and stays with her for months. She's basically sent away. Her reputation is shot. What's Joseph going to think? He's going to think I've been sleeping with some other man. He's going to see me get big and I'm going to say I'm pregnant and he's so say, who even sleep with you? Well, it was a virgin birth, you know. I had, a, I had somebody that actually said that they had gotten pregnant without ever having any relationship with me. I said, well, that's the second virgin birth in history. So she has to count the cost, and it's going to really cost her a lot. There's a stigma involved in those days with a woman having a child out of wedlock, and in fact, it wasn't that, it used to be that way in this country, remember that? Remember when somebody got pregnant, and they, or some, a girl suddenly disappeared, and she went away to live with her aunt for several months, and said, where is she? Well, she's, she's gone away for a while. <laughs> we knew what that meant, you know. <clears throat> so she knows that when she says, so be it according to your word, that there's a cost involved, and there's a cost involved, for, cost involved anytime God calls you to do something. And we always need to be counting the cost. And God might be calling you to do something. He may be calling you to do something with your money, with your time, with your service. And you know what God's been dealing with. And you need to count the cost. And after you count the cost, knowing that if He's called you to do it, He will bring it to pass. And you're actually being blessed, favored by God. And him calling you to do that. Amen. But it's going to cost you. And people in your family may not understand. And people might think you're crazy. But you have to be willing to say, according to your word, so be it. Mary is a model for Christian obedience. Often I wonder, what would have happened had Mary said no? Not so, Lord what the result would have been. Maybe it would have been like Zacharias. Maybe she would have still had the baby, but she would have been deaf and dumb. I, mean, I don't know. But I know when you say, Lord, according to your word, then God blesses you, and you get to experience the blessing. And so I believe that Mary is a model for Christian <coughs> obedience. We'll pick up there next week at verse 39. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have a word, a contemporary word for us, that we can look on this passage and 2,000 years later realize that it applies to us. It's not only a great historical event, but just as Mary heard the angel's words that were uttered to Sarah and applied them to our own life, so, Lord, we can hear the words that were given to Mary and apply them to our lives. So help us, Lord, be obedient. Help us to realize that with you no word is impossible. You back up your words with your actions. May we say, Lord, so be it according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.